0: Welcome to the Takeaways Juneteenth special, I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And Juneteenth, for those who don't know, marks the day that enslaved people in Texas found out they were free, two years after President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth, to me, marks a celebration of Black culture and freedom, and with the celebration comes food and friends and family and music. The entire month of June happens to be Black Music Month, so let's listen and enjoy.
1: Say,
2: uh, you you mind if I play you a little something real quick?
3: I don't know. The last time you went on an impulse, you embarrassed the out of me.
4: Look, this will be easy. I promise. Watch.
0: Okay, if you're a black woman of a certain age, then you already know. That was Lorenz Tate as Darius Love Hall, kicking it to Nia Long's character, Nina Mosley, in 1997's Love Jones. Now, a lot of us have been revisiting Love Jones in recent weeks, thanks to its release on Netflix this month. Now, the film was an artistic intervention in the 1990s, a hard departure from the Boys in the Hood, New Jack City version of Black Urban Life. It offered us a wholly artistic rendering of African-American life and love in Chicago, complete with stepper sets, spoken word, and philosophical debates at house parties. But the most important part of Love, Jones? The music.
5: Who am I? It's not important. But they call me brother to the night. And right now, I'm the blues in your left thigh. You're trying to become the funk and you're right.
0: From Charlie Parker to Dion Ferris, Lauryn Hill to the Lincoln Center Orchestra, woo, child! It is the music that tells this story. And storytelling is what black music does. And it so happens that June is Black Music Month, an opportunity to read those stories laid down in the tracks of black artists, both past and present. How many of you know what month this is? Somebody said June. Right on. This is Black Music Month. Yeah, right on, Mr. President. That's President Jimmy Carter in 1979 declaring June as Black Music Month. And for decades, black musicians, producers, songwriters, and others have shaped the musical landscape of this country and the globe. From maps to the Underground Railroad, hidden in the lyrics of Freedom Songs. baked into the blues.
1: I went to the crossroads, fell down on my knees.
0: The necessity of improvisation and collaboration written by jazz. Mm-hmm. The struggle of the streets, narrated by hip-hop.
4: the We
0: got fight the power. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. In for Tanzina Vega, and we start today with celebration and discussion of Black Music Month here on the Takeaway. And for more on this, we're joined by Nabil Ayers, writer and general manager of the record label Four AD. Nabil, welcome to the show. Thank you.
6: Nice to be here.
0: And also with us is Mark Anthony Neal, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University and host of the podcast Left of Black.
7: Mark, it is so
0: great to have you with us.
7: What's up, Melissa? How you doing? Oh, it's so
0: good to talk with you, Mark. I am going to start with you. I want to start with the origins of Black Music Month. Where did this come from?
7: It is Kenny Gamble, it is Deanna Williams, uh, who's still on radio in Philadelphia, and it's Ed Wright, um, wanting to find a moment to take advantage of the popularity of black music taking signals from what country music, the country music industry had been doing, Um, they approached President Carter. You know, can we get some sort of acknowledgement? And and we heard his great words in the beginning as they all sat there on the White House lawn having a kind of soul food picnic, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. listening to soul music. Um, And, you know, for someone like Kenny Gamble and, and, you know, who's the founder of Philadelphia International Records with Leon Huff, It was an opportunity not only to talk about the popularity of Black music, but really to double down on the idea of the Black music industry as an important economic cog to Black Americans um, in America generally, and and to acknowledge its broader history of the impact of Black music.
0: So I I love that sort of... um place that you began with us. And I have to say, when I watched that video with President Carter, it just, it was so high 70s. It was really um, fascinating to watch. But Nabil, I want to come to you because part of how we entered into this conversation, um, you know, on the team and wanting to talk about this today, was this piece that you did for Pitch. Um, really asking what Black Music Month means now. So in talking with um, artists for Pitchfork, what did you find that Black Music Month means now?
6: Um, it was a really interesting project because I went into it, you know, my background is that I used to, I was an intern at a record company a long time ago, and then I worked in and later owned a record store. And, uh, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, Black Music Month really existed largely in record stores because that was where people bought music. That was really the only mm-hmm. place. So I was very familiar with it. And now I work for a record company and I notice it every year and I just kind of assumed that everyone knew it. Um, but when I saw the, you know, every year it's a presidential proclamation that Black Music Month exists and is celebrated, which is pretty incredible. And that started with uh, Bill Clinton, I believe in 2000. But when Donald Trump tweeted it last year in 2020, I was just so surprised to see that that was still a thing and that he was doing it. I mean, there's a, it's online. There's a very long letter from him that, you know, I doubt he actually wrote or even read, but it's celebrating, calling out certain artists, talking about how important black music is in America. Um, and so that made me really think about it and get into it. And my plan was to talk to, you know, a younger generation of artists and newer artists and artists of all ages and kind of learn what their thoughts are on Black Music Month 42 years in. But what I found is that, and this isn't true across the board, but a lot of the people I talked to, especially the younger people, just weren't familiar with it. And you know, Deanna Williams, who I spoke to, it was clear (laughs) to say that for every artist I talked to that wasn't familiar, there are many who are, and I I know that's true. But it was interesting talking to these people who weren't familiar. So the piece's focus really kind of shifted to all the interesting things I learned about that artists are doing that are in the same spirit of sort of not only mobilizing the economics, but just talking about the sort of broader sense of what Black music is and and getting it out there, whether or not it's officially associated with Black Music Month.
0: All right, so I want to go to exactly that idea. Mark, let me come back to you for a second. What is Black music?
7: Uh, how, much, how much time do you <laughs> I'm, <have>? I'm <laughs> glad that you laugh. That's
0: Mark and I know each other going back, so... <laughs>
7: I I think most people generally think of it in terms of music that's produced by black people that are that's produced in what we recognize um as black musical idioms um but of course that's complicated right because black genius is spread out in so many different genres of music and in many cases genres of music of people that aren't aware of right so we just don't know about the black imprint for instance on classical music the same way that we understand that imprint and jazz or blues and r&b and things of that nature um and then it gets a little you know interesting Thing, when you might have, for instance, white artists um, who happen to be very good at performing black music, right, in black idioms in ways that, you know, I think about Boz Skaggs as being a great example of this, right? There are people who might know just right now when I tell them that Boz Skaggs right. is white and I'm didn't right. know so because he sounds as though he makes black music.
0: So, okay. Let's pause here for a second because, Nabil, one of the other pieces that I found interesting in, in the conversations you were having with artists now is exactly kind of that point that on the one hand, there are the, uh, the history that I told, sort of the the freedom songs, gospel, you know, blues, jazz, we recognize those. But you were talking with artists who were in other spaces who wanted to also lay claim to that as part of the Black music tradition.
6: Right. I mean, you know, one of the really interesting conversations I had of many was with Angel Bot Deweed, who's a clarinetist and composer who lives in Chicago. And right, I was on a Zoom with her. And, you know, sort of to, to illustrate that point, she told me that she'd just been on a Zoom with 12 black bassoonists.
0: And yes 12 black bassoonists <laughs>
6: just blew my I want a mind, podcast
0: but... called 12 black bassoonists <laughs> i yes. know
6: right it's really incredible and she was you know talking a lot about how in the classical world and the composition world there's a huge black presence but most people just aren't aware of it and and likewise i mean I, again i learned a lot just talking to people about of course electronic music where, where kate jonata just won the was the first black person this year to win the dance electronic album uh grammy and song grammy too i believe just kind of incredible but You know, dance electronic music is a genre that that is generally a byproduct of, you know, funk and house and disco and all these more traditionally black genres. So there's definitely a lot of that happening. Rock music, of course, country music with Mickey Guyton this year. Um, Yeah, there's it definitely exists.
0: All right. So but there's this other sort of maybe the 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 we don't want to call it the dark side, the nefarious side here, Mark, which is um, not necessarily white artists who are performing what we might traditionally think of as black music and are widely loved and accepted by black folks, whether we know their own racial category or not. But what about the Elvises of the uh, the story of black music, those who drew from black music but did not cite black music?
7: I think that's another reason why Black Music Month is so history. I think of my colleague Guthrie Ramsey, um, who describes it as a Black Music History Month, right, as an, as an opportunity to double down on a broader history. Um, we know from the 1950s, right, there were, you know, more than the Elvises, um who were involved in, in what we know as the cover movement, where white artists specifically would record black music and, and dumb it down. Right. <laughs> white it down, if you will. Um, So everyone knows, you know, Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, but most folks have never heard Big Mama Thornton's original version of Hound Dog, which sounds so dramatically different and dramatically black, you know, as opposed to the Elvis record. Um, There's so many cases, right, you know, folks will say, well, now this is a great time for folks to acknowledge that the African-American impact on Black music for folks to get their recognition, but that recognition sometimes comes in the the vacuum of the economic realities that so many people were able to generate so many millions of dollars on Black musical labor and Black musical talent that Black artists never got the opportunity to see, and that was why this was so important for Kenny Gamble and, and Leon Huff and Philadelphia International Records to make that particular connection between the popularity of Black music and the economic role that it plays in Black communities.
0: So Nubiel, let me come to you on that because one of the folks you talked to said, well, Black music is green.
6: Right, that was the, uh, I think that was the official sort of tagline of the first <laughs> Black Music Month in 1979, which, you know, was, was a very overt and obvious statement to, you know, that they were not trying to be subtle about saying that there is a lot of money generated by Black artists playing music and we need to acknowledge that.
0: And does that green though show up in black communities, or is it primarily enriching other folks?
6: That's a, I mean that's a tougher question to answer. I and mean, I know, and Mark, you probably know more about this than I do, but I, I know that part of the, you know the Black Music Month—the reason part of it began—because they wanted to funnel more of that money black back to black businesses, um, black-owned record labels, of course, black record stores. Um, but the, yeah, the, the is it going there question, I'm not sure I'm qualified to
3: answer.
0: We heard from a caller who mentions how Black music tells a story, and the song she mentions does just that.
3: This is little Key from New Orleans. Let me tell you, the song that speaks to me the most is Uh, Life by Casey and JoJo. And when you hear that song, I be thinking about all them brothers that be up in Angola. And so I think that song helps me imagine how they get to that point. You know, the song say, what happened to my master plan? It shouldn't have gone down this way. You know, black male in the family of three been robbed of my destiny. So he already felt the systemicness of racism as a black man. And that led him down a path of life. And he's sitting there wondering, tell me, how did I get life? And if that ain't a story to help you understand where these young brothers be going and headed, I don't know where he is.
0: Listen, let me tell you, just hearing my people speak in our NOLA uh, sound of voice reminds me of how Black music infuses even the ways that we speak. And Mark, I want to come to you on this because I've been missing New Orleans because of COVID-19, a pandemic that disrupted so many things. What did it do to the music industry for Black um, artists over the course of the past year and a half?
7: The music industry's dirty secret is that artists don't make a whole lot of money on the selling of their actual music. Uh, So many other people do. Um, They make their money being on the road by touring. Um, And the one thing that COVID did for black artists over the last year was to, to really hamper their ability to make a living by Being out on the road, um, the internet team incredibly important. You know, folks who figured out ways to monetize. You know, doing performances in their living room. I, I love the work that that Toby and, and Wigway. Um, from down in Houston did over the last year in terms of creating a platform to be able to push his music out into the world without having to go on tour. Versus was so incredibly important, not so much for, for new music, but artists were able to to double down on their catalog. I'm sure the Isley Brothers, Earth Wind & Fire, Patty LaBelle, um, Gladys Knight, you know, so incredible um, uh, increases in the sales of their music, their back catalog because of verses, right? But, you know, once yeah. things open up again, people can make the money that they can make by being back on the road and connecting with people.
0: So uh, you're so right about verses um, and the ways that, from my perspective, the things that saved my life during quarantine was club quarantine and verses, right? Sort of having Black music to to see us through in those moments. But then this point about the green for Black artists. So Nabil, let me ask you about this a bit, because one of the things you lay out in the piece is about the Black Artist Database and other ways that contemporary Black artists are seeking to to support the industry and support one another. Can you tell us about that?
6: Yeah, I think this is a pretty incredible story. I mean, to to do a little bit of a backstory, there's Bandcamp, which is a great platform on which, you know, any musician, small to huge, can upload their album, um, you know, receive payment directly. Bandcamp takes a small fee. Um, However, once the pandemic hit and Bandcamp realized so many artists weren't able to tour and make money like usual. They started waiving their fees uh, every Friday, sorry, once a month on a certain Friday each month and calling it Bandcamp Friday. So on those Fridays, they were very heavily publicized and pushed by artists and artists were receiving or artists or small labels 100 percent of any income that came in that day. So those became a big deal. And right around that time, um, a woman in London has a DJ named Nikita Della Nancy, Kind of realized that even though things were hard for the the musicians she knew in London and Europe, that it was harder in America where there was, you know, no real sort of fallback plan and people were having a hard time paying their rent. And she saw the Bandcamp Fridays as a real way to kind of mobilize support. So she and some other friends got together and just started a, a simple Google spreadsheet and started a list of black electronic musicians. I think she said they got about 30 people they knew and they could think of. Um, And this was two days before one of the Bandcamp Fridays in June of 2020, and put that up on some Facebook pages and some groups, went to bed and woke up. Um, They'd Mm -hmm. asked people to to sort of add to it and woke up. And there are 500 names on the list, which was kind of incredible. And by Friday, the next day, there were a thousand. And this was a way for people to literally just put money directly in the pockets of those musicians by buying their music. Um, Bandcamp pays musicians every day via PayPal. So there's no waiting. There's no monthly thing or anything like that. Uh, and it turned into a much bigger thing. I think it's at around 3,500 artists and creators and labels right now. And they, it, it was under the Instagram handle Black Bandcamp, but now it's called the Black Music Database. And this is completely volunteer run. There was no money behind it. No one was getting paid. These are just people who saw a need and and acted. And it's kind of an, a great example of you know what somebody can do today that's in the spirit of Black Music Month.
0: In so many ways, that feels to me like the very stories of what Black music is at its core. I mean, even beyond the sonic aspects, sort of that notion of the collective, collaborative work that we do with each other, even as we're creating art. But Mark, I I have to reveal this. I feel nothing has shows my age more than music taste. Like I'm definitely that person who now mocks my children about the hip hop they listen to. So help me to think about the stories that are being told in contemporary black music that maybe an old head like me can still really appreciate.
7: You know, they're telling the stories of their own lives, right, and and in the world that an 18 or 19 year old experience now is very different than the world that we experienced when we were that age. Um, Black music has always been about storytelling, right? Both the storytelling of individual artists who are making music, but also the broader stories of who we are as a community. And, and you know the thing that has been ongoing about Black music, if you want to find out what's happening in Black America, listen to the wide genre styles that we define as Black music, and you will hear the story about what's going on. Um, we know that, for instance, that you know young artists and young Black folks are dealing with things like addiction to painkillers um, because you can't listen to a hip hop song and not hear some references per se. Um, That's mm. just mm-hmm. one, one. As just one example of that, um, and I think very often as older listeners, because I'm because I'm with you right there, right? I'm sitting there in the car, my 18 year old. I'm like, what is this that we're <laughs> listening to? Right? Can can I put on my Billy Preston CD? Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but you know, they are articulating the world that we're they're in, and we have to get away from. Placing judgment on how they describe that world and actually go in and listen to what they're dealing with and what they're feeling at this moment.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much to Mark Anthony Neal, the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. He's also the host of the podcast, Left of Black, and to Nabil Ayres, writer and general manager of the record label 4AD, and check out Nabil's piece in Pitchfork about what Black Music Month means now. Thank you both for joining us.
7: Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: In 1917, the United States officially entered World War I, and African Americans who'd fought in every conflict since the Revolutionary War were among the first to volunteer. But President Woodrow Wilson's decision to resegregate the armed forces meant many were shunted into non-combat roles. Still, these men and women hoped that bravery in war would lead to more equality back home. Instead, the war against American racism became even more deadly. In 1917, American lynch mobs murdered 36 black people. In 1918, they killed 60. In 1919, lynchers took 76 black lives. And then in 1921, a violent white mob attacked, burned, and destroyed the prosperous black community of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This year, as we mark the Juneteenth celebration of freedom, we also commemorate 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre. Episode three of the podcast Blind Spot Tulsa Burning specifically addresses the two wars that Black Americans fought as soldiers in World War I and as second class citizens back home. The host and co producer of Blind Spot Tulsa Burning is Kalalea, and she joins me now. Welcome, Kalalea.
8: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Melissa.
0: Let me start by saying, um, this is truly a beautiful piece of audio storytelling, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just so pleased that it happened in your hands that you've that you've created this.
8: Thank you. Thank you very much. And I wish I could take all the credit, but believe me, there's a village behind. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a whole team of folks who are working to make this such a beautiful, special podcast, so I want to acknowledge them.
0: You know, in some ways, when you make that point about there being a village, uh, mm-hmm. a community, a team it brings us to Tulsa. And there's, you know, recently been a lot of conversation about how much was lost and, you know, estimating like Brookings estimate something like 200 million. But can you talk to us about what was lost that can't be measured in dollars?
8: Yeah, I mean, I imagine because I grew up in a town similar to Greenwood, I imagine that it's a kind of place where people, you know, barred money and sugar and items and they were able to play and everybody knew everyone else's children and that there was a real sense of community and people rooting for one another and support and you know all the other things that go on in communities also drama and and um (laughs) pain and 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 suffering and things like that but i would suspect that Greenwood, from reading about it, you know, these were people who were not very far removed from slavery itself, generations like one or two generations removed from slavery. And they were just trying to make a, a good life for themselves. They were just trying to be happy, to feel safe, to be in community. And um, yeah, it's, it's very evident when you read about the various people who made up Greenwood.
0: want to talk a little bit about episode three the two wars what are the two wars
8: so the first we started off with Wilson declaring war deciding that he was going to enter war the U.S. would enter war in 1917 so a few years after um, the great war had already begun so that's one war that was happening overseas, but not only in France, all over, you know, and other parts of the world in the country. And then the other war, what was happening on U.S. soil, was this war, it seemed, against Black people, against people in Black communities of this sort of, you know, the the racial terrorism, the mistreatment, the abuse that was happening throughout the country, which pretty much led to, the Great Migration, where, you know, some 6 million African-Americans ended up migrating to other parts of the country from the South. And so you had it where it just wasn't safe, like, every move that you made as a Black person in this country, no matter where you lived, could get you killed. You know, whether you're walking too close behind a white woman, if you you know, happen to look a certain way or look a white person in the eye that could get you killed. I'm sure you know all about this, Melissa. Um, (laughs) You know, so life was life was really challenging and you were like walking a tightrope at, at any given moment if you were a black person in America during this period.
0: And yet, and I think this is part of what's so lovely about what you're doing in this episode, and yet Black folks make the choice, the decision, and and often with a lot of angst, to go off and serve the country, to go off to Wilson's War, to serve in World War One, and in part with the hope that Doing that kind of service might, in fact, have a have an effect on that that home front, right? That it might create mm-hmm. opportunities for more equity and citizenship. I think I was most struck by um, your storytelling about the banners that say, um, "While we're gone, please mm-hmm. don't lynch our please family." Please do not members. lynch our
8: families while we are gone. Yes, yeah. I mean, that was very. Um, sobering just to read that, to see that it, it's, it's, it's actually from a nonfiction book called Boom Tom about Oklahoma. And um, one of the producers that found it, one of our producers had had found that line and it we knew we had to include it. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sad because they really had very good intentions and in, in, in enlisting in the war in hopes that this would stop the domestic terrorism stop the mistreatment and the abuse that their families had been experiencing. But they were very well, you know, aware that the possibility, the fact that they couldn't be there to protect their families um, would put their families at risk.
0: When you're talking about um, your producer having found this and making that decision to include it, I also really appreciated that you took us on a, some of those journeys of trying to uncover this story. It's not like it just is on Wikipedia and you can you know you can <laughs> record what everyone already knows. Right. One of the right. most critical try, was but yeah. yeah, but you're gonna be wrong a lot. <laughs> right. Right. Um, But you tell the story about seeking out some of the key articles from the Black press from that time, those that told and recorded those lynchings in real time, particularly those of a a newspaper man, uh, Smitherman, and they're gone. Talk Mm -hmm. to me about that loss of Black history. Like, What happened? Where are they?
8: Yeah, I mean, I wish I knew. A lot of people have to be complicit for research centers and major institutions, just to no longer have certain issues on microfilm, certain issues of newspapers, um, you know, literally somebody cutting them out because, you know, uh, you know, back then there were just the papers and then microfilm. And then now a lot of things have been digitized, but even, you know, and all of those three cases or instances, uh, People just could not find it. We had a professor Boyd say decades ago, he went to a library in Muskogee, Oklahoma, not far from Tulsa, and he wanted to do research on this. He's now a professor and he was working towards that back then. He wanted to find out more information about what happened in Tulsa. And he was so shocked by the fact that there were holes in the newspapers. Um, And so, yeah, there was a very um, deliberate and systemic way of removing our history of removing story um, that pertains to black life, or that might be evidence or documentation of abuse, mistreatment of this terrorism that was happening throughout the country. Yeah, it's, it's really astonishing.
0: Not unlike the legislative attempts to end what they call critical race theory. I just I was thinking of yeah. that as I was thinking about people cutting out these stories from the newspaper, from the historical record. I was like, oh, that's what this is. Yes. And, and I, I guess I want to come to you on this is that, that to me that's part of the value of this kind of storytelling. It is both so that we can know that history, but also you gave me this really beautiful way of understanding what was happening right now. So what is it that you hope that audiences will take away from this episode and from the podcast in general?
8: My hope is that people will engage with this history, will also talk to their own family members, their friends, their, their immediate circles, and just have conversations like this. I mean, it was really surprising to me every time I spoke to a Tulsa native who said they didn't know anything about what happened in Greenwood in 1921 until they were adults, until they were out of college. And so I think um, I understand why that happened. People were really fearful of their lives. They were getting death threats and some people were very ashamed and embarrassed by you know, maybe their descendants of perpetrators or maybe their, their, their family members were part of the massacre. But today we, we can no longer afford to do that. You know, I mean, I think that's the reason why this story is so very fresh and so many people have been able to to do documentaries and podcasts about it is because of the living word is because family members wrote things down in their journals. They talked to each other. They talked to their pastors, their spiritual advisors, their elders their children, other people in their lives. And so I think that's what I hope, is that people are no longer afraid to talk about this history, that we embrace it, that we accept it, that it's, it's a part of healing and it's a part of moving on. And it's, it's critical if, if um, we are going to to reconcile a lot of this history.
0: So Kalia, sometimes when we're telling these histories, we focus only on the experience of of victimization of loss, which is important. But at every point, there is also resistance. There's also pushing back. There's also these communities in defense of themselves. Tell us a bit about that part of the story.
8: Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to um, include Black resistance and the fact that Black people from the first... (laughs) People who were put on boats have been resisting all along, you know, for centuries now. And this particular group that we focus on in episode three um, came up in conversation again with one of, I think, Professor Boyd, again, who's he's phenomenal. He's not in the series, but he was really great in providing information and, and, and giving me guidance on where to look around this history. Um, he stressed to me, like, oh, there were so many of these groups, these secret societies of Black men, of Black people who were organizing themselves um, because they were very concerned about their children, about their communities, as um, things became more widespread, the violence became more more widespread. So we really wanted to, we couldn't give, like, a, a catalog or an overview of all of the various groups a lot of people know about Marcus Garvey's UNIA, about you know Malcolm X and, and other um, individuals who led the charge, who were speaking up for black people, black intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. But what about some of the working class people? What about the veterans and how they organized? And the African Blood Brotherhood was a really good example of a group like that. And so they were all about the liberation of people of African descent. And they were also very much about the arming and about self defense of Black people. And as I say in episode three, they were sort of like the 1920 version of the Black Panther Party. Hmm.
5: Kalalea
0: is the host and co producer of Blind Spot Tulsa Burning from the History Channel, WNYC, KOSU, and Focus Black Oklahoma. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And I wanted to make sure that y'all had a chance to hear some of this wonderful work. So here's a portion of Episode 3, The Two Wars. Throughout the early
8: 1900s, white-on-black violence wasn't limited to physical attacks. It touched every aspect of African-American lives, from where they could go to how they got there.
9: There are certain ways that, as a Black person, you are to, to act around white people. You know, So stepping off of a paved sidewalk, um, averting your eyes, particularly if you're a man and you're encountering a white woman.
8: Again, this is Mika Makalani of the University of Texas at Austin.
9: And that kind of structured people's daily activities. They did not want to um, do something that was going to incur the attention unnecessarily of whites. And definitely they always understood uh, the possibility of violence.
8: That was also the experience of Black men serving in the military. They were often abused or mistreated by their fellow soldiers and forced to do the most menial task. But when they were off duty and had the chance to go beyond the strict limitations of the army, when they actually got to experience a bit of daily life in Europe, they found it illuminating, refreshing even.
1: It was an opportunity to step outside of the American system. They could look back at it and say, oh my God, it's not as like natural as breathing that the world should happen this way.
8: Adrian Lynn Smith of Duke University.
1: Going to France and being somewhere where like, you know, A white woman would give up her seat for a black soldier on the metro makes you think, oh, this is how things are. It sort of takes away the universality of it.
8: The French government even awarded the 369th Infantry Regiment, the legendary Harlem Hellfighters, with special medals for bravery. And so the soldiers returned from the war with a very real sense of how things could and should be. In Black publications across the country, there were more calls to fight against the violence and oppression at home. Du Bois wrote a powerful essay called Returning Soldiers,
1: where he basically gives that clarion call for the militancy that Black folks will need to fuel this freedom struggle, where he says, you know, we return... To a country that lynches and degrades and abuses us, we return from fighting. We return fighting. And then he says, make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States or know the reason why. Hmm. Which, Yeah, like, that's it. That, that captures it. It still gives me chills. It is a beautiful piece of polemical writing. It's-
8: I read it not too long ago, and I felt the same, like, wow.
1: When I was
2: doing research on literally what was happening in the early 20th century, I wanted to know what was the spirit, you know, that was being swept across the nation.
8: Kimberly Ellis is a scholar of American and Africana studies.
2: I found out about this group called the African Blood Brotherhood, and they were just so fierce. (laughs) Now... There were several Black liberation
8: organizations taking shape at that time, including the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA, founded by Marcus Garvey. The African Blood Brotherhood was founded by Cyril Briggs, an African-Caribbean American writer and self-proclaimed communist based in Harlem. The ABB was small but influential, in part thanks to its magazine, The Crusader.
2: They spoke unapologetically about their Blackness, about armed self-defense. I admired the fact that the Crusader, they refused to take ad money for um, basically skin bleaching. They refused to take ad money for that. And I thought that was so progressive. I was definitely impressed. The Crusader also featured ads and images of dark-skinned women
8: with a frequency that was uncommon at the time. And in it, there were these recipes for making the most of your stale bread and also dress patterns for fuller-figured women. It's hard to know exactly how many active members the ABB had by 1920, probably around 1 to 2,000, and as many as two-thirds of them were women. University of Texas Professor Minka Makalani
9: Elsewhere within the Crusader, they're actually talking about the problem of infant mortality, the problem of child sickness, the problem of sanitation in tenements in Harlem. They're addressing these concerns that speak to those daily preoccupations that tended to fall on women in the household.
8: The magazine urged its readers to take up arms against lynch mobs and protect people of African descent all around the world. The ABB was sort of like a 1920s version of the Black Panthers. The membership included many veterans, among them Harry Haywood, who would become a leading figure in the Communist Party.
9: My guess is that in Chicago, when Harry Haywood is talking about they were arming themselves and taking up positions on rooftops to defend the community. My guess, based on the gender dynamics of that time, is that they wouldn't have wanted women to go on the rooftops and do that kind of thing. But I would not be surprised if we found out that Black women in the organization are at least armed to protect their families as they're trying to escape the violence.
8: Where are they getting these weapons? Can you go a little bit into detail about that?
9: Well, so I think the thing to remember, and, you know, this is kind of a problem with the mythology about the civil rights movement being this passive movement, Black people in the South, this was a gun culture. So people had guns, they were armed with the return of people from the war, people who are veterans, um, that they brought some of their arms back with them. Mm-hmm. Just to give an example of how this might have functioned in Louisiana, uh, Queen Mother Moore, oddly Moore,
8: A prominent black nationalist and civil rights leader,
9: she gives this account of a meeting at a longshoremen's union meeting hall that they invited Marcus Garvey to come give the lecture. And the local sheriff said, if he gives an address, we're going to arrest him.
8: So the organizers of the lecture gather up all their guns, put them in burlap sacks, and bring them to the meeting hall.
9: Marcus Garvey goes to give his speech the sheriff and his deputies begin to make their move and everybody pulls out their guns. He's going to speak. You're not going to touch him.
0: Now that was just a little taste of episode three of the podcast blind spot Tulsa burning from the history channel, WNYC, KOSU and focus black Oklahoma and hosted and co-produced by Kalalea. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Now, this year, many companies have added Juneteenth to their holiday calendar. And on Thursday, it became an official federal holiday. We wanted to know how you're marking the day. And here's what you told us.
3: My name is Anthony. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And there's been a century-long disenfranchisement of the African-American genome in general. From a wellness perspective. And so for this Juneteenth. I am going to release a freedom document. To help people just get free from the body shaming. Food shaming. And diet Eurocentric diet culture that exists in this country. Because uh, we have to set people free from the mentality. That they are second class citizens in just about every viable manner of culture that they live in.
7: This is George Calderaro, I'm calling from New York City, where I am uh, Director of Community Relations at Columbia University. And for Juneteenth, I will be attending Mayor Bill de Blasio's inaugural Juneteenth celebration with columbia community scholar eric washington author of boss of the grips the life of james williams the red caps of grand central terminal about the uh, african-american leader and mentor james williams happy june pink. my name is andrew i'm calling from vermont i can't take juneteenth off because i'm some kind of an essential worker but if
4: i did have the day off I would try to support BIPOC
7: businesses that I know or find new ones to promote and support them.
0: It's always so great to hear from you guys. I know on Saturday, my sister and I are taking a little road trip to see our dad. Family fun and plenty of time to rest are on our Juneteenth agenda. Now, thanks so much for your calls. Please continue to call us and tell us how you commemorate Juneteenth. Use 877 869 8253. That's 877 8, my take. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris Perry in for Tanzina Vega. And this is my dad.
4: And my father never said to me, look, I want you to act the way I act. Uh, But it certainly came across.
0: His name is William Harris. He's a retired college professor and a pretty serious guy. So serious, in fact, that when we were growing up, he routinely signed birthday cards for my siblings and me, not with the endearment, love daddy, but by writing, the struggle continues, daddy. This week, I decided to ask him why. What he told me were stories about his own father and grandfather and their resistance to Jim Crow and their unwillingness to ever yield to racism.
4: And I thought about that a great deal over my lifetime, adult lifetime. And that spirit made me say, look, uh, the struggle continues. And from grandpa, from uh, my dad, from myself, it was always that in my mind, the struggle continues.
0: His response made me curious about our fathers and the ways that they shape us for good and for ill by their stories and their lessons. So we're doing a little Father's Day, the takeaway style. We're talking with women who hold elected office across the country and asking them about their dads.
4: Hi, I'm Mayor Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle. For me, when I was a kid, my father was larger than life.
0: The mayor's father is the late Martin Durkin, who held seats in both the Washington State House and State Senate. He is remembered as both a powerful and beloved elected leader.
4: I grew up in a family that was very much involved in the civil rights struggle. He brought to our house and introduced us to Black Panthers, Indian activists, farm workers, union workers. At that time, it was really focused on how do we make sure that we're building a better society And my dad showed us how you could lead the way on that.
5: I'm Bonnie Watson Coleman, and I represent the 12th Congressional District in the state of New Jersey.
0: Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman is also the daughter of a father who was an elected official. Her dad was Assemblyman John S. Watson, and he was the first African-American to win a countywide election in Mercer County, New Jersey.
5: He was my idol. He was my standard. I thought he was the most Gorgeous, kind, brilliant man that God ever created. My dad never wanted to be an elected official either, but he became part, as a businessman, he became part of a political action committee of some local electeds and some appointed folks um, who were black, who wanted to make the Democratic Party have more respect for us than just to get our vote. And so they selected my father out of this group to run against the party.
0: Bonnie Watson Coleman's political career began when she ran for and won the seat that her father once held in the State House.
5: And I am telling you that from the time I got to the assembly to the time I left, people had John Watson stories, how he helped them, you know, how important he was to them. And it just, you know, I was just very, very like bursting with pride
0: the Congresswoman's adoration of her own father affects how she understands the impact of incarceration on African-American families.
5: We owe our communities a lot because our children didn't have the benefit of their father.
0: Not having a strong relationship with your own father is an experience that resonates with Congresswoman Alma Adams, who represents the 12th Congressional District of North Carolina.
4: I didn't meet my father until I was 15 years old. Uh, I grew up um, uh, with my mom, and my mother uh, remarried, and I had a stepfather for a number of years until I was about uh, 11 or 12 years old, and he passed away. Uh, And it was after that that I actually uh, met my dad. But I did get to know him. Uh, We we had not only many talks, but I got to, to at least understand him as a man. Congresswoman Adams
0: reminds us, that even the most strained relationships
4: can lead to important lessons in living. I think, you know, we're going to all make mistakes. And I realize that my dad made a lot uh, of mistakes, um, but uh, I think forgiveness is the key. And you, you don't want to repeat those. Uh, I use those as examples for me uh, to try to do the best that I can do uh, for not only my children, but for the community uh, that, I, that I represent.
0: The City of Charlotte, North Carolina is part of that community that Alma Adams represents.
2: I'm Vi Lyles and I'm the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: The only daughter with five brothers, Mayor Lyles learned many lessons not only from her dad, but from her grandfather and from her brothers.
2: My grandfather started a small business in Columbia, South Carolina with a wagon and mules. My dad went into business because of his father, and today I have five brothers and they own that business, and it's a third-generation Black-owned business. My brothers made that business successful because of the values instilled by my dad.
0: The mayor's father did not live to see her run for office, but she is certain he's proud of what she's accomplished.
2: I think he was really proud of me for being that person that sought knowledge in a way that was authentic to myself and the ability for me to give back to this community, especially my community, my city now, Charlotte.
0: About five hours south of Charlotte, in Atlanta, Georgia, there's another woman mayor whose father had a big impact on her life.
2: Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta, Georgia.
0: And there's no mistaking how the mayor feels about her father, the late Major Lance, who was a popular R&B singer.
2: My daddy was the absolute best dad in the world. He was a lot of fun. He loved me unconditionally. He always saw and believed the best in me. And although he was an entertainer, and his schedule often cost him to work at night, uh, he was the one who I saw when I got home from school. Um, he was a good cook, he was a lot of fun, and I miss him every single day. Major Lance may be gone, but his lessons
0: were made with his daughter.
2: The most important lesson I learned from my dad was to never be afraid to be told no. He would often say to me, what well, did you ask? Did you try? The worst they can do is tell you no, baby. So I've learned um, with that, just this big lesson about not being afraid of rejection or, or failure. So many of the highly accomplished women that we talked to
0: told us they were able to stand in their own confidence, in part because they knew their dad always had their back.
8: My name is Pramila Jayapal, and I am the
4: Congresswoman representing Washington's 7th Congressional District. My father is 90 years old, and he lives in Bangalore, India. I think the most important thing
8: I learned from my dad is to uh, believe that you can do anything. My dad really believed that and he took his last $5,000 and used it to send us his girls to the United States at the age of 16. That's when I came here by myself because he really believed that there was nothing we could not do. There were all kinds of things he wanted us to do and politics was not one of them, but He really believed that there was nothing impossible and his girls could do
4: anything. And I also learned about hard work from my dad and that is something that has stayed with me to this day.
3: Lauren Underwood, I am the United States representative for the Illinois 14th Congressional District.
0: When Lauren Underwood took her oath of office in January of 2019, she became the youngest black woman in history to be sworn into the House of Representatives. Her dad has been there every step of the way.
3: He loves politics. He is obsessed with our democracy and ensuring that it's protected and that it lasts. And while he would have never vocalized a desire for his daughter to serve in the Congress, he just bursts with pride. Now, I am not married. And so I have the great fortune of inviting my dad to be my plus one to many of my activities, both formal and informal in this role as a member of Congress. And he loves it. He loves it.
0: The congressional social scene must be a pretty big change from the small town in Alabama where Lauren Underwood's father grew up.
3: Okay, so my dad grew up in a town called Demopolis, Alabama. You know, I've never really been to Alabama with him since I was like one years old, but it definitely... Um, shaped who he is. Like my parents don't really believe in vacation. Like we haven't, we haven't gone on a family vacation where you get on a plane together since probably like third grade. Vacation was visiting other family members, right? And, and choosing to uh, further deepen and cultivate those familial bonds is something that very much, I think, came out of how he was raised.
0: They may not believe in vacation, but Lauren Underwood's parents come to every single event that she has in her district. And then they give feedback.
3: Every week when I come back from Washington, um, I sit. So my dad's retired, and I go to their house. So let's say I come back on a Friday afternoon. I come to their house, I sit at the island, and my dad will stand and talk for an hour, an hour about, you know, what I said, what the speaker said, what Adam Schiff said, you know, what they said on MSNBC about it. Then you know we talk about the actual decisions that like we go through it in depth. And it is a joy to be able to share not just an achievement, but what I feel like is work that I've poured my whole life into at this stage, right? Like this is what I spend my time doing. It's such an honor to be able to share this phase of life with my parents with my father specifically.
0: That gratitude for the shared journey was echoed by many, including by Nina Turner, former Ohio State Senator who is currently a candidate for Congress.
4: So my dad is my biggest fan and I just really love him very, very much. And I appreciate uh, the lessons that I have learned from him. And I appreciate the fact that uh, he continues to to just show love and appreciation for me and that he's very proud of me. And especially in light of the fact that my mom is not here right now. So I really do lean on on my dad for that presence. Dad, I love you. Happy Father's Day.
0: If you want to know more about these women and their dads, check out our digital package in partnership with Harper's Bazaar. It's available on Father's Day at harpersbazaar.com. Now that's all we have for y'all today. And we really appreciate you tuning in for our Juneteenth special. Please be safe and have fun. Now, before we go, I wanna give a shout out to this amazing crew who puts this show together daily. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Jose Olivares, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMillan Laird. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Shamsundra is our board op and Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer, and Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our executive producer. We also had a little help this week from the tiny but mighty team of the Anna Julia Cooper Center. Special thanks to Miller Coffee, Crystal Dixon, and Jamie Crockett. And a shout out to the incomparable Shanta Covington for her work on our Father's Day segment. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway.